come and invest in the elephants in Thailand, if they are allowed to roam freely, they're going to be able to produce more carbon in the forest for which you can use to offset the carbon footprint of your company. You get the offset, the local communities gets the money, businesses can come in to create ancillary activities around these services, and guess what? The world benefits from a cleaner environment. Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at The Firm. This week's podcast is something a little different. We're very excited for our guest, Ralph Shami, an Assistant Director and Division Chief at the IMF, who has been at The Fund for more than 22 years. Lately, Ralph has become widely known for his incredibly interesting work on the carbon capture potential of biodiversity. Focusing on whales, and more recently elephants, Ralph has proposed an incentive-based plan for economies to harness the value of their natural wealth. Ralph, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Many observers are arguing that 2021 is shaping up to be a watershed for the environment. In part, this is because of America's re-engagement with the international community, the Paris Climate Accord, and, and all of that. But also in part because of the new and ambitious plan in, in most major economies. Regardless of how one assesses the quality of these, these initiatives and new policies, it's increasingly clear that policy implications will impact every facet of economic activity globally. Ralph, your, your work tackles an important but often less appreciated area, which is the economics of biodiversity. To start off with, maybe you want to tell us a bit about your journey. I've been familiar with your work for many years, and your focus has always been macroeconomics, finance, and more recently, you've you've published extensively on fragile states, on immigration and immigrant remittances, but you've transitioned to, to biodiversity. What? How has that journey been? What took you in this direction? Thank you, Osama. Thanks for the invite to, to speak to, to your audience about this topic. So it started with a conversation I had with a colleague. I said, uh, it's been my dream to see the blue whales. It was on my bucket list. And, uh, and I was just, we were just walking and talking. And, and suddenly she looks at me and says, oh, uh, I belong to this research group that studies the blue whales in the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. Maybe I can get you a, a, a seat on the boat, <laughs> on the ship. And I, I thought she was just joking. Uh, and I said, that would be wonderful. And uh, about a week later, I get a phone call from the captain himself. Says, uh, I have a cancellation. Would you like to join us? And, and I said, I know nothing about whales. He said, yeah. Do you know how to swim? Yes. You know how to dive? Yes. Do you get seasick? No. Good. You qualify. Uh, and I said, okay, fine. Great. When? He said, next week. So I had to take vacation and from the IMF and fly to Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, I flew to Loreto, uh, in, in Mexico and get on, on a boat with seven uh, wonderful people that I've never met before uh, and go out for 11 hours a day studying the blue whale, watching, observing, studying the blue whale. Um, and of course, I knew nothing about whales, so I kept my mouth shut. And my job was at one point was uh, Ralph and I would hit the, the sort of the stopwatch when the whale uh, breaches. Ralph, I hit the stopwatch when the when the whale dives. Uh, one night, we were just uh, after eleven hours on the boat. We we used to cook together and and sit around. We we're just having wine and and I was on third fourth glass of wine. <laughs> we were exhausted. I overheard them talk about whale carbon. Now, of course, uh, you know I'm my first degree is in sciences, 
from the American University of Beirut. I was not an economist. So I still remember from my physics uh, that we are all carbon units. And I said, well, carbon, we're all carbon units. What's the big deal? Now, of course, I should have known better than to say something like that, but let's blame it on the wine. Because when I was out on the boat, I did observe that the, the blue whale in front of me was about 110 foot long and was so big that you could fit an, elef an African elephant in her mouth it would disappear completely inside her mouth. Forget the body. Feeding right next to our boat, huh? Anyway, I should have known that, she, of course, a, a, a whale would, would have more carbon than a human. But I was thinking, what is the big deal? Why are they talking about this? And I tuned into the conversation, and one of them said, um, these are all whale experts. So they're like, do you understand what we're talking about? I said, obviously not. What is the... Uh, so they said, well, the whales capture carbon on their body tons of carbon on their body. And I said, is this your opinion? He said, no, this is published work. And so at night when everybody was asleep, I had my iPad. So I downloaded the articles and started reading. Of course, we are economists. So we always look at what is on average. What is an, on average? They don't, scientists don't think like this. They don't work like that. They, they have per species this species that anyway so so I decided I, I was sitting on my bed and I started I, I just drew a table and started putting this species this much per this per that and then I calculate the composite whale and how much and the numbers just jumped at me nine tons of carbon on average now this is ton of carbon now if you want to convert it to carbon dioxide you have to multiply by 11 over 3 and suddenly you're talking about an average of 33 tons of carbon dioxide. And that's the number that you see now worldwide. Everybody's using that number. That came from my calculations in Loreto on, mm -hmm. <laughs> at middle of the night. So the next morning, according to, they became my friends. They said you, you, that I was quiet the whole day, didn't say a word. You know, I'm Mediterranean. I'm likely to speak and use my hands. I, they said, you were so quiet that everybody thought, is he okay? I was digesting what I had just read. Now they hit me with the second shock, which is that same night. Again, there's more wine. There's more fun, wonderful food. And we're just, and I hear something about the elephant pump. And again, the same question. I was like, okay, guys, what is this elephant pump? And they said, uh, so one of them asked me a question. He said, do you like puzzles, Ralph? I said, I love puzzles. He said, uh, you, you told us you've been to Africa. I said, many times. Have you been on a hunt? I said, I've observed a hunt. Uh, what do you see? I said, I saw the, 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 the lions chasing a zebra. And eventually, unfortunately, they caught the zebra and they killed it. He said, good. Uh, now, now, suppose the, the lions all were to die off. What would happen to the stock of zebra? And of course, you know, there's a trick to this question, right? I said, well, of course, at first, the stock of zebra would increase, but then since there's no predator, they, he said, stop, stop, stop there. Just stay with the first derivative. What happens when, this, when the lions die off? I said, the zebras increase. He said, good. Now let's go back into the water. You've been observing the, the, the whales. What were they eating? These are baleen whales. Baleen whales don't have teeth, right? They have like a sieve. They, they swallow water. And with it, they swallow the krill, and then the water gushes out. And you know, tons of the water gushes out of gallons of water, and then they they trap the krill inside their mouth. And I said, uh, "Okay, yes, they've been eating krill." He said, "Now suppose all these whales were to die, what would happen to the stock of krill?" I said, "By same analogy, the stock of krill would increase." He said, "Wrong." <laughs> 
the whales, when the whales die, it's been, it's been observed, it's been studied that the krill, stock of krill decreases. Solve the puzzle. I said, okay, what does the krill feed on? And he said, phytoplankton. And I, okay, now I need to establish a relationship between the phytoplankton and the, and the, and the whale. And so I asked the same question. I said, what does the phytoplankton need to survive? Now, why is the phytoplankton important for our discussion here is because phytoplankton are viewed in a sense as the lungs of the planet. Yeah. People forget that four-fifths of the planet is water and the phytoplankton capture, it's estimated between 20% and 30% of all the CO2 that is emitted and they return over 50% of all oxygen that we breathe. So in a sense, every other breath that you and I take you should be thanking the phytoplankton for. So I said, okay, what does the phytoplankton need to survive? And one of the experts there said, phosphorus, nitrogen, and iron. He said, where do you find them, Ralph? And I said, well, probably runoff from rivers or movement of wind. He said, good, good. But in Antarctica, where are you going to find all of that? Middle of the ocean, where are you going to find all of that? It's in the, excuse my expression, it's in the, the scientific word, it's in the fecal plumes of the whales, otherwise known as whale poop. Hmm. I was like, what? He said, yes, those, those whales, they, they, they fertilize their food. They come where the phytoplankton is and where movements of the currents are moving nutrients up and down. So where the currents are active. And as they dive down and up you know, to eat and come up, they also release the, uh, their, their poop. That poop in Antarctica has contains the limiting factor, which is iron. In the Atlantic, it has a limiting factor, which is phosphorus and nitrogen. And that causes the phytoplankton to be extremely pro productive. And as a result, there's more phytoplankton, that there's more food for the krill, there's more krill, there's more food for the, for the, for the whales. That's a virtuous cycle. Now, of course, aside from the science, I was interested in the carbon part. You see, because I, I, was, I, was, I was stuck on the carbon and I said, so the whales are contributing to the capture of carbon directly on their body and indirectly through their fertilization of the phyto. He said, yes. And of course, people have to remember, whales are very heavy. They're, we call them negative, negatively buoyant, meaning when they die, they sink to the bottom of the ocean and below about a thousand feet or so, they are there for, for a very long time. So what you're having is carbon that's not interacting with oxygen. So it doesn't become CO2, it remains at the bottom. So that's why we say they sequester carbon when they die and fall to, to these great depths uh, all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. Is this your opinion? He said, no, 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 it's published work. So in my mind, I was trying to say, so what is the total impact of whales on carbon capture. That's what I had in mind, but there's no paper. No one, had, no one had bothered to do any of this. Two days later, again, we're all having dinner and, and, and they are now crying about how the whales are dying. We used to have 5 million whales in the world, steady state if you like, and now we're about a million. Certain species are not wait, wait, in steady state. This is pre. I mean, at what point? Pre whaling. Pre whaling. Pre whaling. Okay. Pre whaling. So nature has deemed that there ought to be about. They estimate between four point five to five million whales of different species. 
we have about a million or so now. Some species have recuperated ever since whaling was banned. Some other species like the right whale has not recuperated and is dying out. So they're saying our cries are falling on deaf ears. And I said, um, you know, can, maybe I can help you guys. And they said, how you, can you help us? They said, well, I said, look, you, you've been telling me stuff I never knew. You're telling me if I do back of the envelope calculations, those whales are capturing so much carbon or it's keeping carbon dioxide from being going up that they are giving, they're providing a service to us. They said, yes. I said, but that service has value and I can calculate that value. How would you calculate that value? I said, well, if you tell me how much carbon in total or some estimate of it, uh, how long does a whale live? They said, well, some, some whales live 125 years, some live 95 years, I, some live less. I said, okay, let's assume it's a minimum of 60. They said, oh, that's a minimum. I said, okay, let's do the, let's do the exercise with a minimum. Turns out that there's a positive relationship between fisheries and whales. More whales, more fish. And I should have known that because when you have more whales, you have more krill. When you have more krill, whales are not the only consumers of krill. It's basically, as you said, you know, the, the bio, the biome, the, the, the biosphere is all, uh, all of it. The ecosystem is, is, is alive and well. And then there's also whale tourism, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. And one of the scientists looked at me and she said, so, but it's really, you know, the phytoplankton are doing the, are the lungs of the plant. I said, yes, but I cannot appeal to people's imagination through phytoplankton, something they can't see in the water. And she said, but that's every other breath that you take, Ralph. I said, yes. And then she looked at me, she said, so how much do you value every other breath? Literally, Usama, I remember, looked at her and I said, you know what, this is the most beautiful title that I've ever seen on a paper that I have yet to write. Then I went back after that, you know, went back home and I started to work on this. I had two objectives in mind. One is to bring the knowledge to the people, the, uh, you know, beyond the converts. The conversation about conservation was always among the converts. And that's why I wasn't going anywhere. I wanted to bring that conversation to people like me, what, the people like they call it, what's in it for me crowd, the financial guys, the policymakers, right? That are gonna say that they, they do this cost benefit analysis in their head. I wanted to say the following, even if you don't care for the whale, this whale is providing you a service that is incredibly crucial for you. How much do you value that service? I believe from my, you know, when I arrived at, at, at that narrative, at that, uh, at that uh, node, certain is a huge segment of the society with the resources were demonized, called you don't care, you guys are selfish, you're this, you're that, were kept out of the conversation. But this is the financial side that has the resources that you can bear, bring to bear on this problem that can help solve the problem. And from my work at the fund, having worked as a fragile states mission chief and this and that, you need to have everybody inside the tent if you want to solve a problem. You don't, you don't want to demonize anybody. You want everybody to feel part of the problem. So you provide a different narrative for different people, but it's all with the same idea in mind that the whales in this case are important for us. They're intrinsically valuable. There's no ifs or buts about it, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a whale going to work on your behalf, providing a service for you for which he was never being paid. Why should these whales work for free? 
This was the idea. So I went to the office really early in the morning and I, I had an Excel spreadsheet. I put down everything, calculated it, and I got a number. And I said to myself, I must have divided by 0 0.001 because this number can't be true. This can't be true. So I deleted everything, went. Uh, by that time, Paul had opened. So I went and had breakfast, came back, re read the algebra, same number. And I said, this can't be true. So I deleted everything, uh, went for a walk, ended up on 17th Street, St. Michael's. I hadn't been to church, as you know, for a very long time. So there was the mass was over. So I went and sat in there. And the conversation went like this. Look, you and I haven't seen eye to eye on these, on many things. If you want to teach me a lesson, no need to humiliate me this way. Because if I tell the, the world, this is this number, I'm going to be humiliated in perpetuity for the rest of my life. I'm not a famous economist. I have nothing. I mean, I have a little bit of a reputation, which I really don't want to be the laughing stock. Somebody comes around and says, you, hey, Shami, you forgot to divide by 0. Point, you, you divided by 0. 0.001 or something like that. Then I went back to my office, sat down, deleted everything all over and redid. And the number came, same number, $2 million came up. And I didn't know what to do. So I have two friends with whom I've published many, many papers, Tom Cosimano and Connell Fullingcamp at Duke. So I called them up and I said, separately, I said, I'm going to send you X's and Y's and equations. Your job is to find the mistake. What is this all about? I said, no, nothing, just find the mistake. And literally I created another narrative and sent it separately without telling them that I sent it to both of them. Each one of them came back and saying, no, this is correct. What's, what is this all about? And this is when I had to come complain. And I said, this is what, and they said, you must be crazy. What are you going to do with this? I said, I don't know. Do we, do we tell, do we tell, or we forget about it and continue writing papers on banking regulation and uh, asset pricing and, and, uh, and Connell said, but I know you better. I said, yeah, we, we, we now we're going to write the paper. Question is, how are we going to write the paper? We agonized over that for a long time. Now the paper went, of course, viral, and uh, they, they made videos of the, this. But the original title was not what the title is. The original title was "How much do you value your next breath?" Colon saving the whale. That's the that's the title that I suggested. Conservation. When you come to a policymaker, since then I've been involved in these conversations. Typically, and you say, we need to protect the forest. We need to protect the cheetahs, the bonobos. I don't know. The first thing that comes to your mind is how much is this going to cost me? That is very well understood. What is not understood is the next part, second part of the equation. What do I get in return? The typical conversation would go like this. How much is this going to cost me? What do we get in return? The scientist says, you get biodiversity, you get uh, fish, you get... And you could see right then and there that the boss kind of tuned out. Why? Because as soon as the scientist leaves the room, a, a private, a, a financial person, a, a, a developer is going to walk in and say, hey, if we get rid of these ugly uh, salt marshes, I can build you a marina. And that marina is going to produce for you so many tax dollars. You've lost the conversation. Now repeat the same conversation, but with the following caveat. A hectare of salt marsh captures five tons of carbon dioxide per year. 
a healthy salt marsh would live 500 years, meaning forever, is a bond which paying you a coupon payment <laughs> for 500 years, discounted to the present. It's a very valuable bond. You've taken the, uh, the whole conversation in a totally different direction um, because you've, you've taken us in a, in a space where we've really realized that, that we simply have not been looking at these services and, and valuing them at, at anything. We have been essentially been valuing the whale or, or you know, you've done work on elephants, etc. only in terms of the products that they give us, whether it is, it is meat or is it ivory or whatever it is. Um, there is a there is a value to this. We, we, we're valuing these these animals in just in terms of the product they produce. And and what you're essentially telling us is that is that a a a living animal is worth a lot more than a dead animal. So yes, the answer is yes. If you if a ship were to strike a whale, it pays no penalty. But once the whale dies. Let's say this whale dies, right? And you pick it up and you take it to a country where they still eat whale meat. That whale will fetch $80,000. So it's the worst kind of situation. It only acquires a price when it's dead. But when it's alive and it's capturing all that carbon for you and adding more fishes into the ocean and producing, uh, you know, tourist dollars. And I can tell you how much that value is. It has a price of zero. So uh, uh, Mark Carney recently, you know, said it, it seems like the price, of, uh, the price of everything is the value of everything. Well, how can it be then that there's a value, I can tell you, of the whale when it's alive? It's, it's actually a minimum of 2 million, Osama. When I did the study, the price of carbon, a, a metric ton of carbon dioxide on the European exchange was, I think it was $24 in some. Now, today, if you look now, it's $36. So that value, of that, that value of the services of the whale has already gone up. But anyway, it has a, has a value of zero. That service that it provides for it, I'm not talking about the value of a whale, I'm valuing the services of the whale. They're incredibly valuable, but has a price of zero. It's only when it's dead, cut to pieces, served in a restaurant somewhere, it acquires a price of $80,000 if it's a fin whale. If it's, fin whale is three-fourths of a blue whale. Every other whale is much smaller. It gets about 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. An elephant, kill an elephant today, nothing. Price has a value of zero. These are forest elephants in Africa, not the savanna ones you visit on a safari. These are the ones you never see. But take out its tusks, sell it, you, if it's a trophy tusk, it's $40,000. So the price, but the elephant, like we did with the whales, walk around the forests of Africa. As they walk around, they walk on, on these small shoots and they eat stuff, allowing the older shoots more space, more sun, more rain. And they also, excuse my expression, when they eat a lot, the elephants are known for going to the bathroom quite often. And that, that, a service is a, is incredibly is a huge fertilizer for the forest. So the scientists that did this work in 2019, Fabio Berzaghi, and his fellow scientists living in Paris, they called me up, said, "Hey, you valued the whale. 
Well, why don't you take a look at the forest elephants? They're dying. We used to have 1 million of them. We're now down to less than 100,000. Half of them are in Gabon. That's it, that's all that stuff. And they're dying at a very high rate. Can you value their services? <laughs> so you, you conduct a similar experiment, although the physiology is different and other things you gotta worry about. You use a population model and you use a logistic approach because remember, what you're looking at is elephants that used to be 1 million and now there are 100,000. So you're trying to get back to the 1 million. In the water, you had 5 million whales and we down to 1 million and we're going back to 5 million or four. It's not growth in unhindered growth. So it, it tapers off. It's a logistic model. Anyway, so we do the same thing and the value of a living services or carbon services of a living elephant is at the minimum $1.75 million. But right now, there's no market for that. But kill, poach the poor creature, take out its tusk, suddenly it acquires a, a price of 40000 Something is not right. And that bothered me. So I went back to where you and I studied our economics and to, to, this, to the general equilibrium theory, to this. And you realize there we assumed free disposal. Free disposal means if something has value, it has to have a positive price. Guess what? We violated that because there's something that has value but has a price of zero. So if you want to approach it from a theory point of view, there's a fallacy in the argument. There's a missing market. People tell me externality. I said, how can nature be an externality to you? Nature is the house in which you live. It's the house which has a roof that keeps the rain from falling on your head and has walls that keeps the wind from knocking you around. How can it be external to you? It's the house in which you operate. It's you are part of nature. But what has happened is I know what has happened, or I think I know what has happened, is we started to think for whatever reason is we can conduct our world, our business without paying attention to renovating the house, <laughs> renovating the ceiling so it can keep the water out, renovating the walls, investing. Because if something has value, as you know very well, you invest in it. This nature has value, but we never invested in it. We assumed it to be limitless and always there. So we abused you know, I, it with impunity. You're raising, you're raising very important questions. I think, I think uh, you know, if I, when I look at the debate that was going on around, around climate policy, for example, there was a very well-received recent book, Making Climate Policy Work by, by Victor and Colin Ward, uh, where they're, they're arguing that, that essentially why climate policy isn't working um because because of politics because it's not that the market fails but that the exact policies to get the market to work are designed with so many exemptions so many loopholes that because of politics the market is simply not working because the policies are ill-designed your argument is very different it's not that the markets aren't working but the markets are simply incomplete so it in a way chimes a bit with with that but is that, is that a good way of characterizing it? Beautifully said. It's a missing market. And this is, where I, market. It's, this is where I differ with my colleagues. And it, to the point that I went back to my graduate uh, school, I w met 
the famous uh, mathematical economist Ali Khan. And I called them up and I said, I would like to visit with you. Uh, and I'm embarrassed because I don't know whether I, I forgot my economics or there's something that it doesn't add up. Because you see, I, it bothered me for the longest time. I mean, I had written about the whale and I had written about the elephant, but that, that, that idea that you just put your finger on was in the back of my mind and I could not reconcile it. Is it an externality or is it the missing market? So then I called uh, Professor Ali Khan and I said, I, I, can, I, can we have a conversation? He said, oh, of course. So we spent eight hours outside because of COVID sitting and he looks at me and says, no, you're absolutely right. The competitive equilibrium, when we talk about competition, all this stuff, assume that anything that has value has to have a positive price. Cannot have a, neg cannot have a price of zero or negative price. You're, 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 it's a violation. But what you're telling me is there's a missing market. So we have to bring that market into the fold and then redo the exercise. And now what do you do is you, you get a new, a new, if you like, if you're a theorist, you'll say first order conditions or Euler equations, or if you like, you know, the cost benefit analysis now integrates that missing market in, its, in the ultimate equation. But that ultimate equation now has nature needs in it and your relationship yeah. to nature embedded in it in its core dna so now you are you you brought every everything into the fold and the nature that has been used as an afterthought or assumed you see because as you said if it's a missing market that means it's missing that means you 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 you're maximizing your welfare if you like you're doing your best assuming this thing either doesn't exist or it's always there with infinitely supplied. So you don't have to bother with it. Well, guess what? You and I can't even meet because of COVID. And COVID is, an, is one example of how nature is saying, you better be taking me very seriously because here's a virus that you can't see in a wet market you'll never visit in your life, brought the whole world to its knees, caused the death of over 2.5 million people, many more driven into poverty and destitution, and caused and cause the world growth rate to, I don't know, tank to, uh, I think the latest estimates was minus 5.5% in, in, lo in loss of uh, growth. So nature is saying, I'm here. You've taken me for granted. And now you need to come home for your own sake. We need to bring, the, we need to bring that missing market into, into the full framework and then redo our, redo our thinking. And guess what? Turns out that nature is not limitless. It's in limited supply. So there's a cost and there's a benefit. And you have to, again, do the same calculus as we do with any other project. But now the conversation is like this. I want to do this. How does that impact nature? It's part of your calculus. And then you would abstain from activities that would produce so much good for you at the expense of nature, because then there's a loop now that brings back, says, well, if you hurt nature, it's gonna come back and hurt you. So why don't you look at the net benefit? Guess what? It's a net loss. What are some of the uh, policy implications of your research? How can you know, someone like, something like the state take this new knowledge and, and make it actionable? Yeah, so, so if you take this conversation to its logical co conclusion, it's selling you that we've discovered a hidden wealth that has been sitting there. So this is not about you and me deciding how we want to divvy up an existing pie. So I get more, you get less. No, this is saying there's been a hidden wealth sitting there and now we've uncovered it. 
which means we're all going to get something. So we're all going to be better off than we were before. Question is, how do we, how do we recognize the value of it? And how do we reconstruct our societies and our behavior, change our behavior to, to bring it into the fold so we can all benefit from it in perpetuity? Now, the way I think about it is, I always say this conversation is, is about three things. Science, which is, so you can always say, we didn't know this. So when, when, when Osama was saying, well, you know, uh, the book that you were, uh, you know, um, uh, highlighting to me. Policy work. Yeah, exactly. You're highlighting that it's the exemptions. I Let me be magnanimous to these people and say, you know, um, forgive them for they know not what, they, what they're doing. They did not know what they were doing because they didn't have the information. They but can't know that, what they're doing. They're not economists. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's the other thing is they don't, they don't know this. They didn't know this. I certainly didn't know this circa 2017. I had no idea about this, right? Scientists knew about this, but there was, conversation was missing. Scientists live in the world of science, policymakers and investment investors are in the world of dollars and cents and cost benefit analysis. And the two camps were not talking to each other. Plus to tell you the truth, I mean, the science of the elephants is 2019. So really the science wasn't there. So the science now is there. So now what you're doing, you're, you're using valuation to translate the science into the language of the markets the language of policymakers, what I call it, the cost-benefit analysis, apples and apples, oranges and oranges. Now, the next question, Paul, is, well, how do we create policy around it? Well, if you allow me, we need to go back one step. You guys are financial economists. I'm a financial economist. And we all, you know, we all know about, uh, let's say, mortgage-backed securities, or if you like CDO, CDO squared. Have you ever met a CDO? No. Have you ever touched a CDO? No. Have you ever shook hands with the CDO? Yet you traded it, although it's invisible. It exists in the law. But you traded it as an asset and you put it on your balance sheet as capital. So the puzzle for us is how is something that doesn't exist in reality, doesn't exist, becomes an asset that has value and it's put on the balance sheet. That's what I'm after. Because in this case, the asset exists. It's in front of you. It's a whale. <laughs> It's an elephant, you can smell it, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can watch it, you can befriend it, but it doesn't, it's not an asset yet. I need to take this creature. You, if you don't like the word asset, use treasure, national treasure. I want to value its services to us and I want to put it on the balance sheet of countries because once you do that, you've changed, you've changed everything. Everything changes because suddenly countries that were poor become rich. <laughs> suddenly nature that had no value has value. So it lives in perpetuity for you. So Paul, to your question is what the policy implication is a living and regenerative nature is far more valuable to us than a dead nature. Let me put it in a more cliche terms. Currently, the paradigm is an ex has an extractive proclivity towards nature. You, you only value nature when you take stuff out of it, oil out of the ground, trees from the forest, cut them, okay? Uh, elephants, you kill them and, and you sell their ivory. Fish out of the water. Just, what I'm saying, leave nature to itself. You, it doesn't need human engineering. Leave it. A living and thriving nature will produce for you 
not only better environment and fight against climate change, but riches beyond your belief. Let me give you a concrete example. We are doing this through rebalance.earth for Gabon, because we are trying to save the elephants in the forest by, by selling their services, not the elephants. And I'll come back to this, but just let me give you a number and then I'll explain how we, selling their carbon services, because Fabio Berzaghi, the scientists proved in a peer-reviewed journal that the movement of the elephants in the forest and the way they eat increases carbon sequestration in those forests by 7%. So if you want to tell me, well, what does that mean? That means if you take this experiment to Gabon, the, the elephants in, because Gabon has about 45,000 elephants of the 90,000 that are left. Those, if you were to go back to where they used to have, Gabon could bring wealth to its country by about $30 billion. That's what we're talking about. But the beauty of it is this 30 billion in perpetuity. This 30 billion with a thriving nature, thriving natural world, communities that now live with nature rather than contra nature, they find employment, they find, they find steady income. Businesses will come in because they can create all kinds of services around a protection and regeneration of, and the governments of course will benefit from an increased tax base consumption and, and revenue. And the world benefits because you're going to have, when you have healthier elephants in healthier forests, you have bigger trees, more carbon sequestration, and you're helping. So the policy implication is what are we waiting for? What more do we want? How many more studies to do before the oceans reach the, 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 the peak of Mount Kilimanjaro? I mean, we, you know, we, either you believe there's a climate crisis upon us or you don't. If you think we have all the time in the world, let's take our own sweet time to get the science right. My mom, my dear mom used to say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Science is always improving on itself. Let's get on with it because what's the worst mistake we could make? The worst mistake we could make is we have more elephants and more trees. If you want me to take you into the water, I will take you to the water. And there, there's the, the Chile example, if you like. The Chileans, we worked with the scientists in Chile. We valued the, the whales in Chile. They have some of the most important blue whales in the world. And we valued their services, their carbon services, at about $3 million per whale. What the, what the Chileans, they've started this project called Blue Boat Initiative. And basically is to protect the ocean in Chile and all life in the ocean. And they're starting in a place called a Bay of Corcovado because there's a lot of blue whales there. And they die from the biggest danger to blue whales is not poaching, is chip strikes. So what happens, you have a tanker, as big as the blue whale is, it's not as big as a tanker. So they, they can hit it and not know that they hit it. It's not they aim to kill. They're just going between point A and point B. And so the idea that they had, and now it's moving, is, and, and, and this is the beauty of why we're having this conversation now, Paul, and not a few years ago, because the technology has also arrived. They're working with this company that designed this buoy that sits in the water and has a chip in it. 
and that chip that chip can detect the species of the whale at what location at what depth in real time it transmits that information to a satellite the satellite to a to a, re a reception base on land that that place on land emits the sends a message to the ship you have a, a let's say a fin whale at this depth in this location but so what i've explained to you is science technology is there but your question is a much deeper one let me ask you this do you think the ship will stop because it's been told there's a there's a whale in the water no because the ship is under you know there's a time constraint right they're delivering merchandise they're not going to stop <clears throat> so what will get them to stop <laughs> to get them to stop is the following suppose the the government of the country decides that the whale is worth 3 million it's a national treasure worth 3 million meaning if you do any harm to it your penalty is 3 million do you think the behavior of the ship captain will will change perhaps because now he or she will be thinking if i continue and i hit that whale and they find out about it i may end up paying 3 million but i'm going to make it for you even better than this because i need to bring the markets into this <laughs> lloyds of london insures that ship lloyds discovers that this is now an asset in the water which didn't exist before my father has an insurance company <laughs> I can guarantee you what's going to happen is this. They'll, they'll put a, a line in the policy that says, we will not insure you against whales. Meaning if you hit that whale, no compensation. So now if you're the owner of the tanker, you're going to be thinking, oh my goodness, I'm on my own. I hit that whale. If they find out about it, there's a probability. But if they find out about it, I'm going to pay $3 million, right? But... It does, this, is, this is a system of penalties. Penalties don't build the market, as we all know. We need a system of incentives. But the same insurance company will tell the tanker, but if you were to install a device on your ship, tell you where the whale is exactly so you can see it, you pay a premium, I will insure you. But what I'm describing to you is how, because it's like us when we buy a car. The first thing insurance companies ask you, do you have an alarm system in your car? If you have an alarm, all kinds of gadgets, then I reduce your premium. It's the same thing. It will work exactly the same. Now, you may tell me, but that technology doesn't exist. True. Because there were no incentive for it to exist. <laughs> when there's incentive, suddenly you'll see all these young minds. All that technology, by the way, exists. It's just being applied in different places. There's been no money in it. You'll suddenly see the insurance companies, even the even the designer of the ship, the builder of the ship, will install these devices in it because they want to sell more ships. But what happens here? You're, what I'm describing to you is how the market starts to develop around the protection of whales. The paradigm is shifting. People's behavior now is shifting around the protection and regeneration of whales. Because the markets now, so the, the penalty is not to get money. The penalty is a, is, a, is a form of commitment on behalf of the government to the market saying, I'm taking this seriously. I've, I've declared the, the, the whale, in this case, an asset. 
I'm going to put it on my balance sheet. You, if you harm that whale, you are affecting my balance sheet for which you're gonna pay a penalty. If you ask me, are there examples of this? Take a look at New Zealand. New Zealand has declared the rivers, they've conferred on rivers personhood. Imagine, a river now has the rights of a person. And, and which means you have obligations towards that, towards that river. You harm that river, there's penalties and there could be imprisonment. All kinds of penalties come on you. They declared all animals in New Zealand sentient beings. So in, in Honduras, bees have been conferred personhood on bees because they realize the importance of bees to their economy. So, sorry, Paul, I took a long t turn, but I needed to, 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 to present the framework for you. Is, is what, it's not enough to give a value. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not enough, right? It's, it, you need the policy and you need the next phase, the policy part, which is, which is anybody, I taught corporate finance for nine years when I was a professor, and I studied the history of corporate finance very closely. We talk about the invisible hand. There is no invisible hand. In every market, there was a visible hand of the government that came in and, and either in, you know, gave monopoly to a certain company on a certain product, okay? And then once that, once that started, then yeah, you can talk about the markets, but there was a visible hand of the government coming in first. And there are many examples I can give you of, of how rights to certain assets were taken from their original owners, given to others because the others knew how to use that asset better. Once you understand, once I un understood that, at, at least for myself, then I, you start to apply a similar approach to this, which is natural-based solutions, or if you like, natural capital can produce future cash flows. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned that, you know, talking about changing behavior, incentives driven by potential policy changes, and, and this associated innovation and potential competition uh, in these new markets. Do you see there being any opportunities for and, and opportunities and implications for investors based on all of these changes that you um, that you're uh, proposing? Absolutely. What's changing right now, uh, Paul? Uh, there's a suddenly recognition by all stakeholders in the society that we need to do something. We need to change our behavior, right? Climate is, crisis is upon us and we need to do something. So it wasn't, it's not only the scientists now saying, be careful, you know, and economists writing about it, but, but the companies are now making commitments towards carbon zero. Governments are making commitments towards carbon zero, right? In, uh, consumers are now, becoming asking questions like, is this company polluting? Young people are, so suddenly there's a cacophony of, of voices, you know, converging on, we need to do something differently. What it is, it'll end up being a combination of when we all interact with each other, something different will be. The investors are one part of those. And I was privy to some of them saying, to the standard investment banks coming to them and saying, oh, you want to invest in green companies? Here's a list. And the, inv and the investors saying, I want companies that are of truly in offsetting their carbon footprint. I don't want to talk about, you know, here's some green technology, I don't know, uh, windmills or this and that. That's not enough. So the investor themselves 
are now edu getting educated through their advisors, through their own proclivity, through their own existence, <laughs> worry about their own existence of their own business to say, can we do better than this? And that is what I'm after, is that game changer is gonna come from the investors. Because as you know, there are trillions out there waiting to get into this market. But the problem is the following, and it was summarized in the report by Mark, Carton, Mark Carney you know, a few months ago. He was talking about voluntary carbon markets. Let me paraphrase it in my own words, add my own stresses, if you like. You have, you have, a, you have Paris Accord, now it's on steroids because of the United States coming back into the fold. It's saying by 2050, we have to, we have to go carbon zero. How are you, I mean, it's all talk right now. We don't have that much time. You're looking at it in years. I'm talking about action, time when you can take action. A, a, lot, a lot of the activists you see here in London, for example, last year we had the, you know, the Extinction Rebellion 2019, right? These, all of these. You know, people who simply just wanted to, like, we stop what we're doing. You know, we shut down Heathrow. This is not a solution. No, it's and not it's, a solution. Not a solution. Right. And, and, yeah. Exactly. I'm with you. And, and that's what I'm, I, I exactly. I, I want, you, you want to work with, you see, again, it's this idea. You want to bring, every, you want everybody inside the tent. Because if you tell businesses you're going to stop, you lose them. We can't afford to lose anybody right now. And there is a way. Nature is saying, come to me. You came from me. You lost your way home. Come home and I'll help you fix it. But you have to stop abusing me. You have to stop taking me for granted. Nature is saying, come back and you don't have to change much and I'm going to give you riches beyond your imagination. We are actually rebalanced that earth. We've calculated for Gabon. We're going to Gabon, hopefully soon, to break ground on this. The idea is that Gabon will get about $30 billion just from the elephant carbon. We're not even doing other things that the elephants can do. <laughs> can you imagine? No amount of money you could make from anything else that involves killing the elephants or cutting down the forests. And you could apply the same thing for mangroves, seagrass, salt marshes, you know, coral reefs, all of these things. These are, these are valuable, but we never bothered because we always assume they're there forever. You can just pollute with impunity, cut them with impunity, who cares? But no, no. And when something is scarce, we're all economists, they have value. Economics is the science of scarcity, allocation of scarce resources. So we can do this. So absolutely, with, I agree with Osama. We don't want to shut down Heathrow. We want to say, okay, let, let me give you a concrete example how this would work. You go to, let's say it's Heathrow. You say to the, uh, whoever is managing, how much carbon dioxide do you, are you producing? Okay, let's say they say we produce 100 tons of carbon dioxide a year, just for example. Okay, that's the services of so many elephants in Gabon. You will now purchase, not the, not the elephants, the elephants are left free. That's very important, please underscore free, because if they're not free, you, they cannot produce anything for you, okay? They're in Gabon, you now have access to the services of so many elephants that will produce for you 100 tons of carbon dioxide in the forest, for which you're gonna pay a fee. That fee is not gonna be just paid like that, lump sum, and no, no, no. It's gonna sit in an escrow account 
And when we can show you that the elephant who services you, you employed, is alive and well, doing very well in the forest and so forth, and we have technology to do that, then you release some of that money. And that money goes to the local community that looks after the elephant. Because conservation does not work when you fly into a country and you say, you need to look after your forest. It doesn't work. That's not working. That's clearly it's not working. Work. Exactly. What you really need, it needs to be owned by the local communities. The local communities has to see the benefit of the elephant alive and the forest alive. So and the this, work that, and this sorry. yeah, it creates it creates something very different. I mean, I remember last year during the uh, presidential campaign uh, in in the states, Joe Biden. I think in, I think it was in one of the debates where he basically mentioned that he would offer Brazil twenty billion dollars to protect the Amazon, and the Brazilians were the Brazilian president was was actually pretty pretty upset about it. He took it as an insult. Because exactly. like Brazil doesn't need twenty billion dollars, but exactly. if you're telling Brazil that that you know the Amazon services are actually worth this much for the rest of the world, and you can and, make yeah, and 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 you sell us these services which are far more valuable than the the farming the the output of the farms that for which they they're cutting the amazons right you create you create the financial incentive that is far more valuable than you know the beef or whatever that they're um, or the soy fields or whatever they're doing right whatever and and then you create a very different dynamic around the world that's right absolutely you don't and by the way you don't even need the tourists <laughs> No, this model, the, and by the way, you don't need the tourists, you don't need the government, you don't need charitable giving, and you don't need the government taxes to, to fund these things. They are self-financed because you're bringing the markets. It's, it's an incredible way of, you, you are, what you're really basically saying is conservation is not profitable. Just, just yes. think about it. If something is valuable, forget the word conservation, if something is valuable, then you want to preserve it and grow it called conservation so suddenly conservation becomes profitable and that's so the old regime of conservation was put your hands out and go find uh, you know rich people who are maybe drunk a little bit will give you money because they feel uh, altruistic on a, on a weekday no you don't need to you say hey you want to invest C come and invest come and invest in, in 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 the elephants in thailand that are because if, if, if they are allowed to roam freely, they're going to be able to produce more carbon in the forest for which you can use to offset the carbon footprint of your company. It's a win-win. You get the offset that you need to do. The local communities gets the money, right? And it, it moves through the economy. Businesses can come in to create ancillary activities around these services. And guess what? The world benefits from a cleaner environment. On that note, thank you very much, Ralph. Always, it's, it's always a great pleasure to listen to you and it's always very thought-provoking stuff. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.